Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And this week we're continuing our Roger Moore Bond series with For Your Eyes Only. Agent 007 is assigned to hunt for a lost British encryption device and prevent it from falling into enemy hands. So that's what this movie was about? Uh oh. Yeah. Full disclosure, I started falling asleep at the end of this movie. <laughs> okay. And I can't decide whether it was because I found it boring or that I was just tired. Okay. I feel like, given the trivia and reading up on it now, it might warrant another viewing. It's so boring. I barely remember it because it's so boring. Like, how long is this movie? I mean, it's about the same as the others, about two hours, 10 minutes or so. Okay, well, this feels 2.30. <laughs> like, it's not good. I would say more, but I feel like we got to talk about it. Okay. Because I think I think there's some reasons why it wound up that way, mm-hmm. but I'm curious as to how we get into that discussion here. Okay. And will it affect the future of the franchise? Because I don't remember these other two movies that well. Okay. Our budget for this movie was $28 million. Compared to... $34 million for Moonraker? Okay, so Moonraker didn't do very well, so they cut the budget. No, Moonraker did great. Moonraker did gangbusters. Then why'd they cut the budget? They didn't need as much. Oh, still stupid. You have to remember, Moonraker's budget was mostly on that entire space station sequence. That's what cost the biggest chunk of money for that movie. Womp womp. The U.S. gross for this movie was $62,300,000. Worldwide, it made $194,900,000. It did great. <sighs> that hurts my heart a little bit. I think we have different expectations from action movies now than we did in 1981. That's fair, but this is just not good. When we talk about our writing here, I think you'll understand a little bit of where they were headed. Okay. Our writers are Richard Maybaum. And Michael G. Wilson. Wilson is going to partner with Maybaum writing the remaining Bond series through the 80s with Timothy Dalton. He also developed James Bond Jr., the television show, the cartoon. I don't know anything about that. Oh, my goodness. Never had cable. No, I did not. It's a plight of my youth. I believe it was a Turner broadcast cartoon. So that was most likely why you never saw it. And then he has a continuing role as a producer on all of the current Bond films. Okay. This is based on one of Ian Fleming's original short stories for James Bond. Okay. His first ever collection had a few stories in it, and For Your Eyes Only was one of them. Those story ideas were actually worked out in committee. Albert Broccoli, Richard Maybaum, Wilson, and the stunt coordinators were all in the room pitching different ideas and saying what could and couldn't get added to the movie. Which if you think about it... I do understand that from like a budget perspective, it's like, okay, we need to figure out what the framework is because we need to, we need to hit this target budget-wise. Like, I, I do understand that. Broccoli should be in the room because he's such a hands-on producer. He does have an eye for talent, and he's not horrible. He's not bad at what he does. The two writers, obviously, and then the stunt coordinators, one, it's budgetary, but the stunt coordinators also of, we want to try this stunt. Well, can we do that? Maybe not. We could do it this way, but you've got to rewrite it to make it work. Yeah. No, that that makes sense. That's that's just a production meeting. 
But I do also consider that that might be a problem when it comes to dialogue. It's that, but it's also kind of like, you know, the whole idea that camel is a horse designed by a committee. Yeah. There's just too many people who want their one thing that they want, and there's just not one person to say no to all the things that don't fit the one clear vision. Let Maybaum and Wilson write their script, then bring it to the committee. Yeah. Let, Let the writers get everything down, then have the committee come through it and tell you what we can and can't do. That's a better idea. One of the biggest factors that we've got to think about with this movie is that it was actually written for a younger Bond. This was going to be Roger Moore's send-off. They were going to send him off early in the film and introduce a new James Bond. See, I love that. Bond 25, I so want in that film, Bond 25, to be Daniel Craig doing his Bond thing and then also helping recruit and train and send off the whoever the new Bond is going to be. Yeah. Which I don't care how many times Richard Madden says, it's not me. It's not me. I'm not doing it. It's flattered to be considered. I really, really feel like this is all a ruse because I feel like the, whoever they're, they're tapping for the next Bond is going to... I want it to be in the movie! Funny enough, this movie actually takes inspiration from historical events. One, the British trawler Gaul disappeared in 1974, and it was rumored to be a spy ship lost on an espionage mission gone wrong. However, around 2014, they found the wreckage and discovered it actually sunk due to bad weather. But it was a long-time rumor, and it was still active at the time of the making of this movie. Interesting. I like a little bit of of truth with my fiction. Then, in 1946, two British destroyers were stopped by sea mines by Albanian communists. Mm -hmm. That sounds pretty close to the sea sequence we see. Okay, yeah. Change some elements around. You know, they're flying Albanian flags on a British ship. There's a mine, whatever. And finally, the biggest thing and the obvious nod is the attack of the the U-boats and finding the Enigma cipher. That's clearly the reference they're going with here. Yeah. So they're grounding it in a fair bit of like true espionage ideas. I, know, I like that though, because at this point, this is Roger Moore's fifth movie. Mm-hmm. Everything's fantastical. So let's make our villain and the situation closer to real life. I love how you tee me up for these things. Yes, because for Bond, Diana reads nothing in regards to trivia or background at all. I know nothing. Moonraker had been a giant success. Even though it was garbage. The critics savaged it. Yeah. They talked about how the gadgets were the only thing going on in the movie. And yeah, that's true. The only fun thing with Moonraker is the sets and the gadgets. You've got a crazy-ass plot, ridiculous villains, and comedy that doesn't work. It worked with Spy Who Loved Me. It was so good. Horny Bond can be funny. But the comedy in Moonraker was just dumb. Yes. Actually, you know what the comedy in Moonraker? It lacked joy. There was no joy. Bond was not having fun with the ridiculousness of his situation. Because the plot is too complicated for it to be joyful. No, I agree. So the writers went for a much more realistic story. And as their templates, they went to From Russia with Love and On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And I like those two. It contains some similar story elements to those two movies. If you think about it, the attack is similar to the Lecter machine from In From Russia with Love. (laughs) 
Kriegler being like Grant, Columbo, our Greek guy played by Topol, is much like Kareem Bay from From Russia with Love. So there's some similarities there. However, we talked about how Moonraker seemed awfully similar to The Spy Who Loved Me. Yes, in a not great way. Let me now give you this wonderful laundry list of how this movie is a lot like On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Oh no. At one point, Bond is with a countess on a beach, threatened by goons, kicks a gun out of a goon's hand, wearing a tux without a jacket. Both movies show Bond at a casino with a countess. Both movies show women losing at Baccarat. Tracy's grave is shown in this movie, and Blofeld has a neck brace. Both Melina and Tracy are half English and half Mediterranean. Melina is Greek, Tracy is Italian. Both have Bond allied with a criminal who doesn't sell drugs. Both have an escape with a car owned by the female lead who drives the most. Both have a wedding and Bond in a helicopter piloted by another person. Both have Bond speaking with a, quote, priest. Both are set in the Alps at some point, have a Bond girl on ice, have Bond getting shot on skis, and have a bobsled action sequence. Mountain climbers shown in both films and both have a Germanic female henchwoman responsible for the charge of other girls and women. And finally, both movies have Bond and his criminal ally assault a mountaintop lair. I did keep thinking to myself so many times, we've done this before. We've been here. And it wasn't just the fucking skis. Wow. I thought Moonraker was bad. When I read that laundry list, I went, oh, holy shit. Whether they intended it or not, okay? Whether it was purely they were going through the script and were like, okay, we like this idea, we like that. It could have been that. Because Richard Maybaum is basically plagiarizing his own script if that's what he did. But it... It's the exact same movie as Majesty's Secret Service. I'm so disappointed. (laughs) The bobsled. The bobsled. I remember pointing it out when we're going through the Olympic stadium portion in Italy and we're like, oh man, this feels super familiar. But it turns out the entire fucking movie is the exact same. (laughs) David is laughing at my unamused face. (laughs) Because come on, people. (sighs) This one isn't even like conspiracy theory level. This one is just like, I don't know how y'all explain this away other than, man, I just wasn't thinking too much about it. And it's it's like that scene in 30 Rock where they're trying to design the new microwave and they wound up with the Aztec. Oops. <laughs> I Okay, so this is this is what, what number Bond film? This is the 11th Bond film, I think. Maybe 12th. Watched 11 of these. Eh. You know, I don't even get this kind of fatigue from Fast and the Furious. And that's only car races and punchies. That's because the stunts escalate ridiculously every time. Yeah. They manage to up the level of the action in those movies. And, and, and the amount of times they say the word family. <laughs> you know it's true. <laughs> oh, it hurts. Part of the problem is they were trying to de-escalate the ridiculousness. And rightfully so. They're, they're trying to take a good tactic of, we want to shift, we want to go more serious, right? We want critics to latch back on. I get it. But they in no way realized they were remaking something they'd already done. They made a camel. Ugh. They made a camel. And I think that's why a lot of people really regard this movie pretty well. 
I think because we've seen these so close together, that's why we're catching it. Yeah. If you had seen the other one in 1968 and seen this one in 1981, your memory's probably not going to be the same of that. That's true. And you might buy into this. Oh, we're taking it a little darker. Roger Moore's going a little deeper with this. I like it. Oh, this is bad. I don't yeah. like it. I don't. Finally, the McClory suit was still outstanding at the time of this. That thing didn't get resolved until 2013. And obviously, we're going to talk about Never Say Never Again. But because of that, they could not use the name Blofeld mm. or Spectre for this movie. Yep. So the manner in which they kill Blofeld in this movie is basically Albert Broccoli's way of giving a huge middle finger to McClory, mm -hmm. saying, we don't need Blofeld to own this franchise. Fuck you. That's true. Except why do you do such an intense action sequence to say that? Why don't you just say it in the press? It's just big dick energy. And drop him in a fucking smokestack like it's a Bugs Bunny cartoon. I did kind of love it, though. Contextually with the with the McClory thing, I didn't realize it was for that. But I do like how it's just like, oh, you can press on with this, but we're going to keep making our movies and fuck, we don't care. Goodbye. I get it. I kind of like that. I mean, it looks really fake, but I still loved it. Our director is John Glenn, one N, not the famous astronaut. Uh, okay. Just want to make sure everybody knew that. I mean, he's had like 12 careers now, so. This is his directorial debut. He went on to direct the remaining first run of Bond films through Timothy Dalton. Oh, okay. So this is going to be our guy. Okay. He actually made his name as the editor and second unit director on On Her Majesty's Secret Service, The Spy Who Loved Me, and Moonraker. Okay. So he's been an integral part of the franchise, and now they're pulling him up to be like, we want you to take the franchise from now on. So he's had three Bonds. Yeah. Those are some good ones. I will say, like, if you're trying to hit the same beats as OHMSS, you want a guy who was there. John Glenn really wanted to bring back Jaws. I understand that. But in talking with the writers, because they were trying to go a little more serious, he really felt like we'd undercut everything deeper we're trying to do with this one. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to transition a little bit. So, nah, Nick's Jaws, we can't bring him back at this point. It just doesn't work. But see, now they should bring back Jaws as an ally, not an, not an enemy. I mean, bring him back as an ally or bring him back as a super fucking dark villain. One of the two. I want to see an anti-hero as, as a Bond ally. Ooh, okay. I could buy that. Have Jaws be a bad guy turned rogue force that sometimes will team up, but sometimes will be against Like, him. hey, this dude... This dude helped me out a couple times, so he's not all bad. I shouldn't like just try to straight out murder him. I love having somebody who's not with any of the agencies who's yeah. just for hire. Yeah. That he has to somehow. I work think with. that would be super cool. That's a good idea. You should write Albert Broccoli. Is he still alive? I well, I think Cubby might have passed away. But That's Barbara Albert. Broccoli is still involved. Oh, the family's still waiting. Uh, okay, I'll email Barbara Broccoli and say <laughs> here's here's what's up. I do a podcast. It's super special. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be my opening line. I do a podcast. <laughs> they wanted to film at the Parthenon because they had had this run of filming at historical locations. Yeah, no, yeah. But the 
Greece they, wouldn't they allow no. them to do that. Absolutely not. That was the right decision. The huge success of the Lake Placid Olympics were the inspiration to go to an Olympic location and film that type of stuff. I mean, it's a good use of Olympic parks. There's a lot of pseudo-marketing going on in this movie, I feel like. Well, it was really bad last time. It was really bad last time. This time, they're really trying to kind of go under the radar with Mm -hmm. it while still hitting beat points. I think what they were trying to do is be like, we don't want to blatantly advertise to you. What we want you to do is things that you already know you're interested in. We want to bring into the movie because we feel like we'll tie into a bunch of momentum that's culturally going on. And so they wound up setting all of that stuff at Cortina d'Ampezzo, the host of the 1956 Winter Olympics. So that's why we go to Italy. Glenn actually came up with the idea of the RC helicopter after seeing a kid driving around an RC car. Hmm. And he was the one who suggested realistic scenery from Peter Lamont. Usually these movies would create elaborate set pieces, Mm -hmm. sometimes with sort of a fantastical element. And Glenn went in there and said, look, if we're going to do this and we're going to go grittier and darker, we need it to feel real. Mm -hmm. And I will say, design-wise, there is a bit of a marked difference. When you're in a villain's lair, it feels real. We go into a yacht, we feel like we're in a yacht. We go into a dock, we feel like we're in a dock. It makes it feel a little boring 80s action movie at times, but I also recognize that it's not Moonraker at all. It doesn't have that feel. It doesn't have that sheen that we were used to for Bond for so long. We've gotten grittier in this movie. I'll agree with that. I definitely didn't notice it when watching it, but now that you say that, yeah, I can see that. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of who could have been betters here. Okay. Again, Steven Spielberg. Mm, <laughs> no, but okay. He came up on all three of these movies for trivia until we hit Raiders of the Lost Ark. And the other one was Peter Hunt, the director of On Her Majesty's Secret Service and former assistant director on all of the original Bond films. I mean, that would have been a good plan. He was working on the movie Death Hunt at the time, and so he was not available. All right, our cast. Roger Moore as James Bond. I mean, even he looks bored. Well, as we noted, he was considering retirement from the franchise. Okay. The scene that we see at the cemetery, that's why it was written. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to provide a continuity for him to hand off 007 to a younger figure. Would have loved that. And that's why that original scene has no continuity to the story at all. Even those original sequences and some of the Connery ones, mm-hmm. they're supposed to be tangential, but there's always a tiny bit of connective tissue to lead us in. Yeah. It's like a cold open on a television show. Yeah. This one has none. Blofeld doesn't factor into the movie ever again because he's gone. You know, Tracy Bond is a neat idea, but it's not a main factor in the story. Well, and and they could have fixed it by just having a quick line or two of just be like, I'm getting tired. Mm-hmm. I'd like to settle down. Yeah. Just something like that. And it may just have been that as they tried to search for somebody, they didn't feel like there was anybody ready to take it away yet. Moore was actually an accomplished cross-country skier, but had not been insured for the movie to ski downhill. Okay. He had never learned that. So all the close-ups were filmed with Moore strapped to a sled, while the stunt skier who filled in for him, Willie Bogner, skied backwards looking into the camera. Oh. And then Bogner did all the actual downhill sequences. Mm -hmm. Huh. But Roger Moore did make a good faith attempt to learn how to downhill ski just so he could, you know, do it in gestalt. And his kids 
had afternoon school near that mountain and were super embarrassed by all the times their dad fell down. <laughs> I love it. But but Roger Moore did get pretty good at downhill skiing. Well, that's adorable. <laughs> he considers this, along with The Spy Who Loved Me, one of his best Bond films. And when he passed away, this, along with The Spy Who Loved Me, were shown in selected theaters around the world with 50% of the profits going to his favorite charity, UNICEF. Well, that's very sweet. He's wrong. But he's wrong. <laughs> he's right about the spy who loved me. He's half wrong. Moore was not a fan about the way he killed the assassin Locke by pushing the car off the cliff. Mm. He basically said, I understood that it could be a James Bond moment, mm -hmm. but not a Roger Moore James Bond moment. This didn't feel true to the character as I had portrayed it up to this point. Hmm. Well, with this movie, they're trying to make a change. They are. Again, we have to speculate, but I'm thinking here, does this movie get way better if we've got a younger James Bond and a new James Bond? Does it dramatically get better? I think it does if they're super charismatic. If they're George Lazenby. But like a new idea of George Lazenby. Maybe. I've got some who could have been better, so we could try those Okay, on. okay, with some replacement bonds. Timothy Dalton. <laughs> okay. At this point, he was not interested because he didn't like the direction the series was moving in. Okay. But they were very much on target for him. They caught him later. Michael Billington, who played Sergei Barsov in The Spy Who Loved Me, the love interest of Anna Amasova. Oh, okay. David Robb who you would know as Dr. Clarkson from Downton Abbey? Oh, huh, no. And James Brolin. Ooh, aside from the fact that he's not British, that would have been sexy. If you're going darker, edgier, sexy Bond, who's got a tough side, a Brolin would work. Again, he's not British. But he's got to be British. That's a rule. It's a rule. You have to be British. Our Bond girl, Carol Bouquet as Melina Haverlock. Mostly she's known for being a French actress in That Obscure, Object of Desire, New York Stories. Oh, I'm a lot of nothing. I just don't care. I really don't. This whole movie is blah, and she did not bring any pizzazz. She actually did audition for Holly Goodhead in Moonraker. Okay. And all of her underwater sequences were faked. She had really bad sinus problems. Oh, and could not remain underwater or dive for oh. any reason. Oh, wow. So in order to film those sequences, everything was filmed in a studio in slow motion, mm -hmm. and they used wind effects to make, make the, hair the hair look like it was moving. That was very effective. And when they were getting dragged behind the boat, the camera would be recorded at 72 to 84 frames per second, and then they played it back at 24 frames per second. Mm -hmm. Super slow motion. And then they added Alka-Seltzer into images put on the exposure to get the bubbles for the water. Well, that was very well done because I would have never thought that. I wouldn't either. Uh, that They get claps. Claps for that. The technical prowess of this crew gets better and better every movie. See, that feels like Dr. No to me. We have no money. Let's do something cool. How the fuck are we going to do this? We got to get a tarantula to climb on his face. That's why I love looking at cool stuff about how movies are made. But how do we do it? Oh, plexiglass. Just put it on top of him there. Oh, yeah. Love Looks it. fine. Cool. 
<laughs> I, oh, I love it. Fun point, Melina is a little subtle nod to original Bond girl Honey Rider. Melina in Greek means honey. Okay. And this is our first ever Bond girl motivated by revenge. What about the spy who loved me? Mm, first Bond girl well, motivated okay. against our villain by revenge. Okay, she, I, I forgot, she was, she was doing her job. Mm-hmm. I, I forget that, but she was seeking revenge. She was. She, that was not her motivation. Okay, that's fair. All right, continue. And there is a who could have been better with this that ties into Timothy Dalton, because one of the reasons they targeted Dalton was Flash Gordon from 1980, the campy, crazy movie scored by Queen of all groups. Dalton was the lead, Flash Gordon. Ornella Muti, who is a famous Italian actress, was the female lead in that, and they wanted her. And they wound up casting our next person, Topol, who was also in Flash Gordon. (laughs) All right, Topol as Milos Colombo. Mostly, he did uh, he did a lot of Israeli films before his big breakout from the biggest role he's ever done in his entire life, Fiddler on the Roof. He is the originator of Tevya. He performed it 2,500 times on stage throughout several reunions. Mm-hmm. He played the role in the film. Mm-hmm. He is and will always be Tevya. Like, I've never actually seen Fiddler on the Roof. But I've seen enough clips of him to know that dude's amazing. Mm -hmm. And he is Tevye. It's crazy to think about, too, because he's done little things here or there, but he spent almost an entire acting career. His entire career was playing Tevye. And here's the thing is he could because he could be made to look old enough. And then so long as you can physically do it, you can do it. He was in his 30s when he first did that role on screen, which is insane to think about. Well, I mean, that's what Lin-Manuel Miranda says. He's like, I'll be doing Hamilton. I will be performing as Hamilton until you have to push me up on top of the desk. It's very old school theater where you can get Lionel Barrymore at 70 playing Hamlet. Kathy Rigby playing Peter Pan well into her 60s. But it's like, you know, back in the day, you could get 70, 80 year olds playing Hamlet, which is Mm -hmm. dumb by story standards. But if they're that good, who fucking cares? Also on stage, age doesn't play as hard as uh, on screen. Yeah, that's true. Tobel was cast at the suggestion of Dana Broccoli, Albert's wife. Okay. After meeting Topol at a party. Sure. Topol actually suggested that Albert Broccoli invite Harry Saltzman to the premiere of this film. Aww. And this was the first time they had ever been in the same room and reunited since the formal dissolution of the, the break, partnership. The breaking. Well, there was a salty broccoli party. A little bit. I mean, I know salty's crazy, but still. A salty broccoli reunion. Oh, yummy salty broccoli. During the dockside action sequence, he was injured by flying debris. Sure. So those explosions were way too powerful. Yep. And it was his idea for Columbo to eat pistachios through the whole film. Hmm. Julian Glover as Christatos, our villain. He related to Crispin Glover? No, he is not. Okay. He is British. He debuted in Peter Hall's incredibly famous 1959 production of Midsummer Night's Dream. Mm-hmm. And then before this, he was in Tom Jones, The Alphabet Murders, Theater of Death, Nicholas and Alexandra, Antony and Cleopatra. Uh, had a run in 65 and 79 on Doctor Who. Juggernaut, 1974's Luther. He was General Veers in Empire Strikes Back. Mm. After this, The Fourth Protocol, Cry Freedom, Hearts of Fire. Walter Donovan in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. He's the bad guy in that one. King Ralph, Chamber of Secrets, Aragog. 
from Harry Potter and Chamber of Secrets. Okay. And what many of us probably know him from now, Grand Maester Pycelle from Game of Thrones. Fuck. He looks so fucking different in that than any other thing he's ever done. He really does, because Pycelle's a creeper. It's the age and then the beard that they put on him. For all the bullshit with Game of Thrones. Their costuming is fucking impeccable. Go look at Kit Harrington before that show started yeah. and what he looks like in that very first fucking episode. Yeah. That is 100% costume and makeup. Yeah. At one point in his career, Julian Glover was potentially a replacement for Sean Connery or George Lazenby as James Bond. No. Okay, but look at this guy. No. Think about 10, 15 years younger, no. a little more hair. He was a dashing dude. He could have done it. No. He was cast because the producers thought he was incredibly stylish. Okay, he's the villain. I'll, I accept this. We move on to some Arpons. Cassandra Harris as Liesel, the Countess. The biggest thing about her is at the time, she was married to Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> this is the first time that Albert Broccoli met Pierce Brosnan. Okay. And of course, he would go on to play James Bond starting in 1995 with Goldeneye. Just put a little pin right there in your history books. Janet Brown impersonating Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. She was well known for her Thatcher impression, and this is the first time any acting head of state was ever portrayed in a James Bond film. I love it. Roger Moore hated it, Mm. mostly saying... This doesn't fit the tone of the film we made at all. I don't disagree with that. <laughs> we get Lynn Holly Johnson as BB Doll, the crazy horny ice skater girl. Oh, God, yes. According to Roger Moore, that character was written to be only 16 years old. Gross. It's gross, but let me say this. Mm-hmm. They did a great job of James being like, okay, go away, little girl. Oh, he, he was very <laughs> repulsed by her. I love that they write the line with James, but they're never like completely off where he's like, no, 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 no. He's not outright rude, but it's just like, you are too young and too forward for me. He's trying to be very gentlemanly. Mm-hmm. He is, he's a, he's a gentleman, mm-hmm. but also like, bitch, get off me. <laughs> like he's so close to saying that. Uh-huh. It's great. Cause it was really uncomfortable. You're just like, he's going to do it. He's going to do it, isn't he? He's going to have sex with her. No. No, he didn't. I'm so glad. No. And he's, in fact, completely turned off by her. Yeah. I give them lots of credit for that because it could have been really bad. Really, really, really bad. Mm -hmm. I'm really uncomfortable and sad. (laughs) Lynn Holly Johnson was an actual professional ice skater who was first noticed in the 1978 film Ice Castles. She did not have much of a career after this, though. She's the girl in Ice Castles? Mm Mm-hmm. Shit. I mean, that movie's garbage, but I've seen it. Next up, we have a very bit role, but a fascinating story. Caroline Cossie, a.k.a. Tula, who is one of the girls at the pool. She is actually a trans model. She was modeling in the 70s and 80s and then was publicly outed as a trans woman by the British tabloids. It became a huge fucking deal. And she wound up writing her full story in a 1982 book called Tula, I am a woman. She managed to make it through all of that fallout Mm -hmm. and actually appeared as the star in Power Station's video for Some Like It Hot Mm -hmm. and had a successful modeling career. She's also the first openly out trans woman to appear in Playboy magazine. And to this day, 
is still a champion for trans rights in the UK. That's awesome. I was like, this is out of nowhere an awesome story. (laughs) It's very cool, just random fact that popped up in here. And she's kind of a badass. She is. That's amazing. We get our Bond Arpons, Lois Maxwell, Desmond Llewellyn, Jeffrey Keen, and Walter Gattel. Who we don't get is Bernard Lee. He passed away before filming had begun. He actually attempted to film a scene, but was not able to muster the energy to finish it. And Q wound up taking over most of M's written scenes for the movie. And Broccoli refused to recast him Mm. out of respect. Instead, they wrote around it saying M is on. Yeah, he's just on leave. M is on leave. I think that's very sweet. Especially as close it was as it was to that moment. The moment and they were good friends. And that's just kind of like, we can do without it for this one. Yep. This, this one we cannot. We get Charles Dance in his first ever on-screen role. <laughs> you were like, Diana, check out this guy. And I was like, <gasps> it's Tywin Lannister. Hell yeah, it is. He is Klaus, a German thug. But also, he actually was in 1989's GoldenEye, which is a biography of Ian Fleming and his real-life exploits. Oh, yeah. Charles Dance played Ian Fleming in that movie. Oh, that's cool. So, he's got other ties. We get Paul Brook as Bunky. He's the uh, weird-looking guy at the Baccarat table oh, who kind okay. of flunks out. The biggest thing you would know him is he is the totally distraught Rancor Keeper in Return of the Jedi. I was like, I know I know this guy. I know I know this guy. And then I saw the credit and I went, yes, I do know him. There is Robin Young, the girl in the flower shop in Cortina. The reason she's in this movie is she was the winner of the Be a James Bond girl contest from Playboy. (laughs) What? She won a cameo in the film and a full spread in Playboy, which is a win, I guess. For some people, it is. <laughs> Back then, it certainly could have been. In 1981, yeah, but Hefner, mm, mm, playboy, gross. That was a fun story that happened here. Weird. We get John Hollis playing the role of Blofeld. He is a bit player in some major movies, but most importantly, he is Lando's aide, the bald guy with the headphones in Empire Strikes Back. You know him if you see him. Yeah. Oh, jeez. <laughs> They all have these weird ties. You got Jeremy Bullock as Smithers, the guy with the arm and a fake cast with Q. He appears in several of the Bond films, but he was also Boba Fett in The Empire Strikes Back and The Return of the Jedi. And finally, our final appearance of Victor Turjansky as Man with Wine. Man with Wine. (laughs) I want that to be all my credits in any film. Woman with Wine. (laughs) Lady, Lady with phone. Lady with a drink. I love it. Lady with the tampons. I don't care. I just just want to be that lady. (laughs) Please be lady with tampons. All right, let's talk about this really dumb song. Why? For Your Eyes Only, performed by Sheena Easton. You know, one of the reasons I hate this movie is its score. Okay. Bill Conti did this score. Bill Conti of Rocky fame. And oh boy, from the first moments when we heard those synthy, weird, it's funky, so weird. I was like, right now, this makes no sense. You could get away with it with Moonraker because of the moon, but no. It was really bad. 
However, there's some fun-ass stories about this song. It did hit number eight in the UK, number four in the US. It received an Academy Award nomination for Best Song, and they performed it that year, and they pulled out all the fucking stops. They had dancers dressed as villains and henchmen, including Dr. No and Blofeld. Harold Sakata and Richard Keel came on stage as Oddjob and Jaws. No! A dancer portrayed Bond and launched off with Sheena Easton in a rocket at the end of the song. And it led in to Roger Moore presenting the Thalberg Award to Albert Broccoli for the franchise of James Bond. Y'all, there's a YouTube video. I'm going to link to it and I'm going to watch it. And I'm very excited. I'm, <laughs> I'm distraught and confused. Yeah, I know. This is also the first song where the singer is shown in the title sequence. Oh, okay. And from then on, they also had a tie-in music video to every James Bond film because MTV's out. Oh, yeah. It's always a, bu- it's a bunch of boobies. But Maurice Bender, God, this man has some crazy fucking stories. He wanted to include her in the intro because after meeting her in person, he told Albert Broccoli, I must have that face. However, he was using soft light focus which meant that if Sheena moved her head the tiniest bit, Mm -hmm. everything would blur. So she kept having trouble. He put her head in a steel clamp, keeping her perfectly still, the tongs hidden in her hair, and the support behind her back. Sheena Easton said, it was the most painful thing I've ever worn, but he got my face in 70 millimeter. Wow. I want to know the story of Murray Spender, okay? Because he's done all of these title sequences. That man has a crazy fucking story to tell. Somewhere in there, yes. And finally, guess who wrote a song for this movie? Blondie. However, Blondie turned down the offer from the producers because the producer said, we will not take an original song. We want you to do Bill's song. And Blondie went, fuck you. We're Blondie. Wow. Wow. I'm so sad. Okay. Our gadgets. Our car this movie is the Citroen 2CV, the Volkswagen bug looking vehicle. So sad. Roger Moore stated that this was his favorite vehicle to drive in the entire franchise because he would. He would say that. I believe that. They actually used four different cars, all modified for the stunts. They all had flat four engines, and one had a revolving plate on the roof so it could keep doing the roll stunts without being destroyed. That's cool. Yeah. We get the Seiko watch communicator, the remote control airways, Blofeld's motorized wheelchair with a helicopter interface, an arm cast to mask a backwards hit, a spiked umbrella that metal teeth bite down on your neck, the identigraph matching criminals to photos. Mm-hmm. The explosive device security system that blows up the Lotus. The fun story about blowing up the Lotus was that was an explicit nod by the producers and the crew to say, hey, we're not relying on gadgets as much anymore. So buy submarine car. I mean, I get it, but I want it. 
And we had console buttons in the brand new Esprit that we had, hearkening back to the old days of the Aston Martin. On to trivia. Sadly, there was tragedy. Stuntman Paolo Rigoni died during the bobsled chase sequence. Mm. That's some dangerous shit they're doing on skis there. The identograph booth has a five-digit code, just like our last movie. It's the first five notes from Nobody Does It Better from The Spy Who Loved Me. So you managed to get the loaders back together again. I disregard these jibes about our equipment, 007. I don't suppose you find it funny in the field. Indeed, I don't. I like how he finishes it. That was cute. (laughs) And also annoying to cue, which is the best. In the intro sequence, you may remember that Blofeld utters a weird non sequitur line of... That line seems to have originated from Albert Broccoli, who recalled gangsters offering delis with stainless steel countertops as bribes in 1930s New York. Okay. Why has no one made a documentary about Albert fucking Broccoli? I'm sure they're in the process. Or a biopic. He's the one who's got the good story. Does he have a book? I'm sure he does. I'm going to have to Google that while you continue to talk. Roger Moore's vertigo made the rock face sequence very difficult to complete. Mm. He said he took a little Valium and a tall pint of beer before he had to do the scarier close-up sequences. Rick Sylvester, who did the Spy Who Loved Me parachute jump, wound up doing most of the climbing work. Moore was only hanging over a four-foot drop, while Sylvester was over a 20-foot drop. And the drop itself was the most dangerous part of the process, because in falling, the jerk of the rope could have been fatal if it was just a straight drop down with a climbing rope Mm -hmm. basically break their back so they developed a system to dampen the jerk but sylvester said he nearly lost it quote from where we were you could see the local cemetery and the box to stop my fall looked like a casket you didn't need to be an english major to connect the dots (laughs) the stunt went fine nothing happened but still I can imagine the imagery being very poetic. There was a major issue that almost shut down filming completely. Monks lived in a monastery on top of Meteora Mountain where they were filming the final sequence. And those monks place sheets and plastic on the roofs and outside infrastructure of the monastery because they didn't want them to be able to film the exterior. Mm -hmm. Apparently, the monks objected to the violence of the Bond franchise. The Greek Supreme Court wound up being convened, and the panel of judges decreed that the monks only had control over the interiors of the monastery, and the exterior and the grounds actually belonged to the public. Eventually, they were able to film in and around the monastery, but they never filmed inside because who wants to go try and convince those monks to do it? So what they wound up doing was they built exterior sets instead for coverage, And then they recreated the interior at Pinewood in London. Mm -hmm. You have an update for us on Albert Broccoli's biography. Yes, he has one. He has an autobiography. It's called When the Snow Melts, the Autobiography of Cubby Broccoli. It does appear to be out of print. That is a damn shame. But the book description, it was published in 1999, though he passed away in 96. This was completed shortly before he died. This autobiography of Cubby Broccoli is the story of one of Hollywood's leading filmmakers, 
from the farmlands of Long Island and the life of an immigrant to becoming the architect of a major film production company. The book describes how he kept in touch with Howard Hughes by means of remote control from Hughes' hermetically sealed Las Vegas penthouse suite. Uh Uh-huh. And also provides accounts of Broccoli's relationship with other Hollywood personalities, such as Cary Grant, who was the best man at his wedding to Dana, John <laughs> Connery, Ursula Andress, and Joan Crawford. <laughs> okay, I'm going to dive into my old bookstore bookseller expertise. I'm going to find a copy of this fucking book and we're going to read this shit. Because holy shit, right? Hells yeah. And we're going to watch that movie Goldeneye about Ian Fleming. This is happening. Oh, boy. That's going to be some crazy Patreon bonus features. Ugh, Ian Fleming's a... Anyway. It's going to be wild, but it's going to happen. This film literally saved United Artists. Okay. They were still dealing with the failure of Heaven's Gate, the most notorious film flop to date. That was Michael Cimino's follow-up to The Deer Hunter. It was a $40 million flop. I think they spent like a god ridiculous amount of money for it in 1980. And critically, it's been widely received as like, This is kind of a lost classic, but it was long and slow and plodding and nobody was into it and it just died. And United Artists was basically about to file for bankruptcy. The worldwide gross of this movie got them back into the black and UA immediately started turning their attention to financial successes, even though the studio had been founded or co-founded by Charlie Chaplin in the 1910s and 20s to provide a specific studio system for independent artists. The helicopter sequence. It was filmed at Becton Gasworks, which you may also remember from our discussion of Full Metal Jacket. That is the same location that Stanley Kubrick converted into the city of Way. At the time, the idea of flying a helicopter in a warehouse was thought to be incredibly dangerous and too difficult to film. So the way they did it was using forced perspective. Derek Meddings, the visual effects supervisor, built a very small mock-up incredibly close to the camera, and the stunt pilot flew behind the model so that when they shot it dead on, it you could see inside the cockpit for who was flying, but you saw the actual helicopter in the back. Wow. They shot the inside footage, the interior of the warehouse, with a real life-size model that they put on a rail so they could move it back and forth while it was hovering. That's awesome. And Martin Grace, who you might remember as the cowboy model in Man with the Golden Gun, (laughs) and longtime Roger Moore Mm -hmm. Double, stood in for Bond hanging from the helicopter. Wow. There is no love scene until the end of this movie, which up until now had been a rarity in the franchise. Yeah, he's not as horny as a Bond. At one point, the effects supervisors calculated that every foot of film shot in the attempted drowning of Bond and Molina, every foot of film cost 2,700 pounds. Damn. The ski sequence was originally written with snowmobiles instead of motorcycles. The Havelock assassination was intended to be the pre-credit sequence of this film, and it was supposed to end up on a close-up of Molina's face transitioning into the introduction why didn't you keep that holy shit that would have been a perfect pre-intro right this woman is motivated by revenge we see her dad and her mom killed and now she is this fiery incredibly vengeful bond girl and that's how we open this movie that's a statement it really is 
instead of this Blofeld shit that we came up with to try to bury the, the past of the franchise. And finally, the body count for this film is 54, 18 killed by Bond. Wow. It's pretty heavy duty for mm-hmm. a lot of these films we've seen. Wow. Okay. Uh, you got any ideas on ratings? I'm, I'm at a loss here. How many pistachios, I guess? Or how many Citroens? Citroens. How many really bad, dumb Volkswagen cars? Yes. Some lemons. Let's do some lemons. <laughs> so Citroen means, means lemon. And that's definitely what this is. I mean, I have seen part of this movie before. I want to give this a very reserved one and a half. I actually want to go see this again, having read the trivia. Yeah. To see if in a different frame of mind, super engaged and really watching it, am I catching what they were going for? Clearly, it was badly written and super a copy of a movie mm-hmm. they'd already done. Yeah. Clearly, they made some poor choices of pacing this movie that just made it drag so badly. But do I get a Dr. No vibe? where I feel like, oh, I see where they're going, or do I just get a boring Moonraker vibe, where it's like, I don't care. I'm also going with the one and a half, because I should not need that much context to find your movie interesting. You're going with the Stanley Kubrick rule. Yeah, I I, I mean, if I need that much context to think your movie is good or interesting, your movie sucks. Yeah, that's fair. There's still some cool stuff in it. I'm just hopeful that as a series... This became a launching point so that these other movies aren't just terrible. Because I, I feel like I remember Octopussy being pretty good. It's one that's talked about a lot. I know I've seen a couple sequences from it just in passing with it being on television from time to time. But I've, I've not actually watched it. All right. Well, until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. (laughs) 